This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The aquarium trade is a billion-dollar industry with commerce of animals, plants, and goods supporting the livelihoods of people all over the world. National and international organizations play a key role in managing and improving this complex business. My guest today, Shane Willis, is Managing Director of the National Aquaculture Training Institute in Australia and President of Ornamental Fish International. Join us as Shane discusses his journey and provides a global perspective on the complexities, challenges, and the future of the aquarium fish hobby. We'll be right back after these messages. Pets are part of the family. Make sure you can always afford the quality health care they need with Easy Pet Check. A nationwide pet insurance alternative, with Easy Pet Check, you'll save up to 75% on all your pet's health care at any licensed veterinarian in the U.S. Easy Pet Check accepts all dogs and cats, regardless of pre-existing conditions. Visit EasyPetCheck.com. That's the letters EZPetCheck.com. Taking care of your pet can be easy with Easy Pet Check. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Shane Willis, Managing Director of the National Aquaculture Training Institute and President of Ornamental Fish International. Shane, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Roy. It's really great to be here. Well, before we kind of get into maybe a little bit of the uh, industry and more into the weeds about the complexities and a lot of the international work you've been doing, I'd like to kind of get a little personal. So let's talk about how you got into aquariums and aquaculture. How old were you when you first set up or enjoyed your first aquarium? Well, one of my first memories is actually being inside dad's fish room, probably when I was about five years old. So dad had a a fish room, used to breed guppies and bits and pieces. So that's going way back into the mid seventies. Things have changed a lot since then, but yeah, that was sort of what got me into it. Um, I really enjoyed playing around with fish. My first tank was the old steel framed putty glass tanks. I had guppies. And the guppies back then were just very, very boring, very much like a gambusia, very little colour. The males were nowhere near as pretty as what the, the females are now. So things have changed a lot. But yeah, it was, it was really interesting back then. So what do you remember about the aquarium hobby just in general, um, you know, stores or and uh, where, yeah, where were you exactly in, in Australia at this time? Well, I grew up in Tasmania, in Launceston. And yeah, I guess things were a lot different to what they are now. The main thing I remember about fish keeping you know, in the early days was salt and water changes. If there was a problem with the tank, you put salt in it, you had to do a water change. You know, the equipment was really basic. The air pumps back then were like a piston, with little wheels spinning around driving pistons, so not like the modern rubber diaphragm ones today. Heaters used to blow up all the time. Tanks used to leak all the time, so it was hard work, <laughs> but very, very rewarding. So yeah, it was great. So you've done a lot, obviously, over the years. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about your um, education and your university experiences. I uh, think from your background, you mentioned that you studied aquaculture. And, and uh, how did you get into that? Well, originally, I wanted to train dolphins. At the time, 
the only uh, marine biology courses were at James Cook University in North Queensland. Basically, I couldn't afford to go to university up there. And the local university in Launceston had just started up an aquaculture course. It was the first one in Australia. So I thought, well, training dolphins, aquaculture, it's kind of the same. Um, <laughs> so I did that. The idea was I was going to do the aquaculture course and then try and get into the, you know, work at SeaWorld or somewhere in, in Queensland. But look, as I sort of got into the course, it was really interesting. And obviously, you know, with, because I've been playing with fish all my life, it was sort of, it grew from there. Um, so I did my degree. I, I was in the first cohort that did a postgraduate diploma in aquaculture. I and mean, I was actually one of the first ones to do a master's by research in Australia in aquaculture as well. So, and while I was doing my master's, I ended up doing a bit of teaching at the university, which was pretty cool. So yeah, it's sort of, I, I was involved there for probably 10 years or so. And yeah, I nearly did a PhD, but not quite. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the, the dolphin turnaround. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with my family in Florida, even though I'm from Chicago and we did SeaWorld and Miami Sea Aquarium. And yeah, I think I was kind of interested in dolphins before I realized fish are, are you know, a little more cool. So, <laughs> Well, I think the great thing about fish is there's probably a lot more job opportunities as well. Um, I remember when I was at university, I thought, well, I wanted to do the, the dolphin training. So Let's try and get some work experience at um, SeaWorld in Surface Paradise in um, Queensland. There was a three and a half year waiting list to get in as a work experience student. So it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very long time. Yep. So, so uh, let's talk a little bit about some of your work experience. You uh, mentioned that you had been at Aquarium Industries for a while. And I happen to know uh, one of the, a colleague of yours, I guess, at the time as well. And he's still there, Josiah Pitt. So uh, can, can you tell yep. us a little bit about Aquarium Industries? Yeah, actually, Josiah, I gave him his job, so he's a great guy. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, look, Aquarium Industries, I guess a step back before we talk about that is that while I was at university, Dad got uh, interested in fish again. We hadn't sort of had a fish tanks at home, and I said to Dad, well, let's set up some tanks and start breeding some fish, and we ended up um, over the course of the three or four years set up our own fish farm. So I started in the garage at home, and then ended up we had uh, a 1,000 square metre warehouse full of tanks so we were supplying well, breeding fish for the Australian market so it was my father and my sister and myself and we actually you know had a couple of casuals so I think at one time we were probably the biggest tropical fish farm in Tasmania and I don't know if you know the geography of Australia but Tasmania's pretty you know it's like down south it's quite yeah, I was cold say it's, very, it's pretty much in the bottom yeah yeah so it's not the most likely place you'd breed fish but you know we had actually our warehouse was actually an old uh, meatworks freezer uh, rooms so it was easy to heat and it was actually more economical to breed fish there than, than um, probably in North Queensland. Our main customer was actually Aquarium Industries. So we dealt with them for maybe 10, 15 years. So I knew the owner quite well. Before you go on, what kind of fish were you uh, breeding at the time? Well, we sort of specialised in South American fish. Our local water was quite soft, so ideally suited to South American. So angelfish, discus, uh, ramirezi, quite a few corridoras, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, we were probably at one stage pr producing you know, 70 to 80% of the angelfish and discus sold in Australia, you know, quite a number of years. So, yeah, it was quite interesting. But, you know, over the time, we bred a lot of the different grammies, live bearers, you know, probably 100 or so different species of fish over the time. That's great. Um, but, yeah, like with, with Aquarium Industries, the owner decided to retire. So a new company came in and bought the business. In, in terms of retirement, the previous owner, he, he stayed in the business for a little while but wanted to get out, obviously. I met the new owners and actually had an off-the-cuff off conversation with them and they said, oh, you're the kind of guy we'd like to get to come and work for us. 
and um, I was sort of travelling in through Melbourne at the time and I ended up met with them about a month later and said, all right, so how much is it going to cost for us to get you to come on board? So I went away and thought about it, gave them a number and they said, yep, when can you start? I thought, damn, I should have asked for another twenty or $30,000. But yeah, look, I went there and I sort of took over the role. Well, the role was sort of technical manager, so basically replacing the you know the previous owner in, in um, overseeing what was going on, trying to improve the system, doing a lot of the work with liaising with the government, you know, suppliers overseas and all that sort of thing. So it was it was interesting. So a lot of training and quality assurance type work. And the really great thing was I got to travel overseas a lot. It was just amazing the the opportunity to, to go and see suppliers all through Asia. So I was sort of traveling in and out of Asia five, six times a year, which was a really, really great thing. So you so you were there, I guess, for about what, five years or so roughly? Yeah, five, five or six years. Yeah. So what, what made you uh, decide to uh, move on or to, to switch gears? Well, the company actually got sold. So uh, when I was first there, the, it was a, a venture capital company out of Sydney that was running it. New owners took it over and I took a redundancy after oh, they were, took it over about 18 months later. Uh, when I was first there, there was a management team that was running it for the venture capital company, but the new owners actually wanted to run in the business. So we ended up with six managers Okay. where you, you only needed three. So and it was great. It was actually at, the, at that time, I just got a fairly large consulting project in Jamaica. So it actually worked out really well. So what was your, uh, do you have one or two favorite memories from uh, your time with Aquarium Industries? Yeah, look, I think it was probably the travel, you know, like getting to meet a lot of the people. You know, growing up, I don't know if you remember, Aquarama in Singapore was you know, oh, yeah. a big sort of highlight of the of the industry internationally. I remember I'd only been working for three months and I got to go to my first Aquarama. And it was just amazing, you know, to meet people that, you know, people like Gerald Bassley, for instance, you know, I had all his books and to actually meet people like that, it was really interesting. So, and sort of, I guess, you know, being in Australia, we're sort of a bit bit removed from everything, being accepted into an international fraternity sort of thing like OFI, well, I guess we'll talk about. Um, just, you know, being able to mix with some of the people that you've admired over the over the years and, um, you know, you've read their books and everything. So it's, that was something that was a bit of a highlight. Yeah. But yeah, definitely the travel was was the big thing for me. That's great. So now you are currently, one of your hats is a director of the National Aquaculture Training Institute. Um, can you tell us how you became involved with that and what the uh, institute does? Yeah, well, as I said, I had been teaching at the university. So while I was working in the fish farm and doing the teaching at university, um, I, we actually formed a consulting training company called National Aquaculture Training Institute with a couple of friends. So look, we we did like vocational based training in Australia, and so we started that in nineteen uh, nine, uh, two thousand and one. And at that time, there was a lot of government funding around for training, so that was great. It really helped us kick the business off. So we sort of specialised more in aquaculture training. So we did anything from tuna, oysters, shrimp, barramundi, you know, sea cage farming, tourist operations, a whole range of different things. My specialty was disease and biosecurity, ornamentals, aquarium fish, obviously, but also recirculating systems. So yeah, between us, we sort of did projects mainly in Australia, but we also did a lot of projects overseas. The other two uh, original partners have, have actually left the business, so I'm the last man standing. Oh, okay. But a lot of the work I've sort of focused on the last few years has been you know, the aquarium industry, uh, done you know, con- consulting work here in Australia, training here, but also a lot of work overseas. Okay, great. So can you, I guess, mention or do you have any specific accomplishments you have all done and, and or any challenges you, you think are uh, kind of worthy of note? <laughs> training, 
Everyone wants to do it, but no one's got the time or money. That's a very important thing to learn. Right. Um, yeah, no, look, there's some challenges with the industry. I mean, there's a lot of companies that we've dealt with, and, and this is aquarium and you know, aquaculture, that you, know, you can see that there's a need for training and more development, but you know, there's often a lot of constraints in the business in terms of time and money for staff. Um, you know, they don't have the time for people to do to do the training, and sometimes you know, they don't always value the, the cost that it's going to be. And a lot of the industry does tend to be a fair bit of itinerant workers. So you have a peak season, particularly for aquaculture. Um, so you get people that are, you know, temporary workers, they may only do one season. So it's hard to get that continuity, I guess, in, in, in staff when you're working with them. But I guess, you know, some of the most satisfying work I've done has been development type work. We did a couple of projects in Australia with um, Aboriginal groups. So they, in Australia, they have uh, like a work for, we call it work for the Dole program. Um, so basically, you know, people get a, a, there's a social security network, so they get an unemployment benefit and they can actually do some work to boost that up. So the couple of the remote communities in Australia, we did some work with. So we set up an aquaculture training program, so a small base, small farm. The guys would come in and do some work, we'd show them how to, to run the farm. And it was a supplement for their sort of unemployment or social security benefit. And, you know, there was a lot of challenges for these guys. You know, there's um, not a lot of opportunity there for, for work, education levels. What kind of fish were they? One of the projects was aquarium fish. So it was mainly like live berries, you know, guppies and mollies and platies. The other one was uh, yabbies. So it's a freshwater crayfish here in Australia. Um, so it was more an aquaculture project. I guess one of the challenges, a lot of these guys had very limited education. I remember being doing some training there one day and one of the girls said, you know, if I had had a teacher like you at school, I probably would have stayed and learned how to read. <laughs> and that just actually nearly made me cry. It was, yeah, that, so that was really satisfying. And um, I was also internationally involved with the project in Jamaica over several years and similar sort of thing. It was about trying to, to develop small backyard farms. And the idea was we get you know, a couple hundred small backyard farmers breeding various types of fish, um, you know, African cichlids pretty suited to that area because of the hard water, but, you know, live berries and things like that, and have a, an export facility that can take all the fish um, from these guys and export it into the US. So it kind of worked, kind of didn't. But again, that was a similar thing, trying to, you know, use, uh, use aquaculture as a means to improve people's livelihoods. So that, that kind of thing is really satisfying. Not that many opportunities to do it, but it's, uh, it's, very, it's a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah, no, it sounds like it, definitely. So let's talk really briefly, and then we'll kind of get more into it. We'll take a, a short break in, in a couple of minutes, but you're currently the president of the Ornamental Fish International, or OFI. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of hobbyists in general don't really know what OFI is. I became familiar with OFI when I was working at, at the fish farm I worked at right after out of school. But before that, I hadn't really known anything about them. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about their overall mission and membership? Yeah, look, Ornamental Fish International, I guess we're the, the peak trade organisation for the, the aquarium industry worldwide. So it's more about, I guess, facilitating and lobbying on behalf of the industry you know, to make sure that we can still trade internationally. So we're actually a European-based organisation. It was set up in the early 80s. So we've actually, our office is the Netherlands, but you now I'm based in Australia. Our current Secretary General is in Uganda. He's actually uh, uh, from Holland, but uh, his wife's uh, got a job in Uganda, so he's there. Our Vice President is Norwegian, and we have membership members from all over the world. I think it's about 32 countries we have members. I guess in terms of our membership, we don't have huge numbers. Um, we've got 130 members around the world. 
But if you look at the volume of fish traded, it's probably around 60% of the fish traded internationally. So most of the major players are, are members, uh, which is good. What we do is we, we do a lot of work in the EU parliament lobbying on behalf of the industry. And we also try to help out wherever uh, in other countries where we can. We do have fairly limited resources. So there's a lot more work that we should be doing, but we just can't do it. But yeah, it's mainly sort of lobbying on behalf of the industry. And I guess one of the things is, you're right, not a lot of people in the hobby know about us because we sort of focus our time on doing the things and not telling people what we're doing, um, which is some of the things that I'm trying to uh, to fix because you know, we need to be telling people what the, some of the issues are that we're dealing with. And um, you know, communication is something we definitely need to work on. Sounds good. Well, we're going to talk more about some of those issues after this short break. Let's take a break and we'll continue our discussion with my guest, Shane Willis, Director of the National Aquaculture Training Institute and President of Ornamental Fish International after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There's no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Shane Willis, Director of the National Aquaculture Training Institute and President of Ornamental Fish International. So Shane, before the break, you were talking a little bit about some of the, or you mentioned some of the challenges. And I, I know kind of peripherally, and, and obviously we're dealing with some similar issues in the in the United States, but can you kind of maybe mention some of the things that are going on currently and maybe over the past five or 10 years that have been a challenge for the uh, aquarium industry? <clears throat> yeah, look, I think it it does vary a bit from from country to country, um, so I probably don't have enough time to go into all, all the detail, but <laughs> I guess, you know, there's basic themes that we see an issue with across the world. So one of them is invasive alien species. So invasive alien species are, you know, species of basically anything that can establish a feral or non-native population in an environment. And I know, you know, for example, you know, in Florida, you've got the problem with the Burmese pythons in the in the Everglades, so it's a great example. Lionfish in the throughout the Caribbean. You know, it's an Indo-Pacific species that's become invasive in, in the Caribbean. So you know, that there are examples from the pet and aquarium industry, but also examples from all agricultural and animal-related or any sort of biological organism, I guess. But look, there's a lot of, at the moment, we're dealing with a lot of issues in, in Europe, for example. So they're developing a whole range of invasive alien species lists. And part of that is the controls are, you can't trade in those species anymore, um, or there's sort of controls where they can be traded within the EU. We have similar issues in Australia. Um, I'm sure it's the same in the US and, and you know, across most countries. So, the, you know, there are examples of species of fish in our trade that are invasive and have established uh, invasive populations across the world. And certainly, you know, one of the things we're doing is trying to educate our members in the you know, importance of biosecurity. But it also goes to the hobbyists too. I mean, a lot of hobbyists will think 
you know, I don't want this fish tank anymore. What am I going to do with the fish? I'll go and put it in the local river because it kind of makes sense. They come from rivers, so I'll put them back there. It's not a good idea because that species, if it doesn't come from that um, environment, could become invasive. It could also transfer disease. So that's, it's not just industry, but it's the hobbyists that we need to, need to educate. So that's sort of one of the big themes. Animal welfare, big issue. And this goes right across uh, you know, Europe, the US, Australia. You know, we're seeing a, a lot more activity from you know, various stakeholders you know, saying that we keep fish in glass jails and you know, pointing out a lot of the bad welfare practices. I guess you know, there's always room to improve management practices. And, and I'd always encourage everyone, you, know, you need to be aware of the, the biological requirements for a fish. You need to be providing the right environment. And I guess you know, one of the things that we try to highlight to people is you know, our industry is based on live animals. If we don't look after those animals, they don't survive. And, you know, there's a commercial imperative for the industry to actually do its best for animal welfare because that actually helps improve survival, which improves the economics of the industry. So it's a, a bit of a misnomer. You know, some of the some stakeholder groups, you know, get information, they twist it. Um, you know, I've seen figures where they say that, you know, 90% of marine fish, for example, are, die within 12 months of being caught uh, from the environment. It's simply not true. And if it was true, there, there wouldn't be anyone left in business. No, no one could survive when you're, you're killing that many animals. So it's, yeah, there is a thing. So it's about a matter of educating governments, trying to put our voice out there, because unfortunately, a lot of these stakeholder groups are very, very well-funded, well-coordinated, and really good at putting out um, information, which is not always true. So we have to be there you know, to help provide some, some balance from industry as well. Another issue is probably biosecurity. So fish diseases, when fish are traded internationally, um, you know, there's various health certificates and, and other sort of information that exporters have to provide the importing countries. So we're seeing a lot more emphasis on that around the world. So they're sort of probably the three key areas that we're looking at at the moment, um, because all of these drive legislation that can change the way we trade. And unfortunately, any changes to legislation normally mean more paperwork and more cost to industry. So that's something that we, you know, where it's warranted, you know, we work with it. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure that any changes that do get put onto industry, practical for industry. So speaking of which, and this has happened, this was obviously a long time ago. Um, I know, and I had a chance to visit actually Aquarium Industries a couple of years ago. What was going on and what were your thoughts when the... Um, the decision to kind of do the, I guess, three-week quarantine of the ornamentals for Australia. You know, what did you think of all that and, and how was the transition to all that? How did that go? Well, that, that regulation was actually brought in in um, 1984. Okay. So pretty well the whole time I've been involved with the industry in Australia, you know, that quarantine's been there. Uh, I think it's, it's good and bad. I suppose in one respect that the quarantine regulations apply to everyone so if you're bringing fishing into the country everyone has to do the same thing so it's it's regulated it adds a cost to the business but that cost you know everyone has the same sort of cost to it so there's no sort of like economic disadvantage within australia because any fish imported are subjected to the same thing it does significantly cost add cost to the business uh, or to the price of fish you double triple the price of of fish because of it does it actually improve biosecurity it does actually help prevent diseases coming into Australia. And because Australia's got such a unique geography, we're isolated. We do have a lot less disease 
across all sort of you know fish and livestock um, so we have some economic advantages in that because we can export product anywhere in the world because we don't have a lot of the you know the horrible diseases around the place so look it is good and you need to be actually makes you be a better fish keeper instead of getting fish in and passing it on and the next person has to deal with the issues you know it's, it's really about quality control and assurance and, and making sure it works properly it's a twin edge sort good and bad Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I could definitely see the benefits, but as you mentioned, I I could see how much, apparently it wasn't too much of a cost increase because it didn't shut down business, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, one of the things that did happen about, yeah, I think is more what you're talking about is there was a change in the regulations as how it was made to work in Australia. So what happened is there's the new disease is the megalocytes virus, which is uh, the one, you know, the dwarf grammy virus that can actually get into Australian native fish. So Australian government thought, well, that's quite nasty. And what they wanted to do is that's the, they extended quarantine by a week, but they also implemented a system where the fish had to be batch test, PCR batch tested before they came to Australia. So that actually significantly added the, to the cost and complexity. A lot of businesses overseas, you know, the Asian suppliers just didn't want to comply. They didn't want to do that. So all of a sudden, you know, you had 40 or 50 exporters shipping to Australia dropped down to you know, a half a dozen. So that had a lot of cost implications, a lot of fish species that we used to bring in, we couldn't afford to do anymore. Yeah, so that did have a pretty big impact. But I guess the other thing too, though, is that the quarantine system has been really good for local breeders. And you know, having been a local breeder myself, if it wasn't for the quarantine system, we would have never become a commercial business because with the, you know, the labour costs and that in Australia, you just couldn't compete now, with the exported price of fish, so having that quarantine period has actually been quite good for local production. Yep, that makes sense. So, um, COVID nineteen, you know, I haven't we haven't talked too much about that. What's your overall? And you know, you sort of have a, a big picture kind of view in talking with some of the members, you know, all over the world. Basically, what did COVID nineteen do to the industry? Look, it's had really mixed impact, and it, and again, it kind of depends on where you are. Um, so couple examples of where it's been really bad so a lot of the indo-pacific islands you know fiji vanuatu places like that basically had no flights in and out so there was zero capacity to, to export fish uh, some of the south american central american countries were in the same boat um, i know uh kenya nigeria you know, places like that, they had you know real real struggles getting fish out because there was basically no flights but i think though you know the in, Around this time last year, it was looking quite bad because that was when all the flights were starting to shut down and countries' borders were closing. And it was it did actually look quite dire there for, for about a month. But once things sort of started to settle down, we actually seen quite a spike in the industry. Um, you know, talking to the guys in, you know, in the US, across Europe, here in Australia, it, it wasn't unusual for an increase of, you know, 30-odd percent um, on the previous year. So, you know, that's a pretty significant growth considering that, you know, there was maybe a month to six weeks where there wasn't much trade at all in sort of that sort of March, April last year. But yeah, and it, this goes for live, livestock traders, but also for aquarium accessories traders. Like I'd speaking to one of the major, was probably one of the largest um, manufacturers of aquarium product um, a few weeks ago and you know, he said that they grew by 37% last year and the only reason they didn't grow by 55% is because they just couldn't manufacture enough product. So that was really good. So I think you know, with the lockdowns that most countries had, people were stuck at home, they wanted something to do and the aquarium industry sort of 
it's had uh, you know probably a bit of a resurgence in a lot of areas because pe- it was something that people could do easily from from home. Um, <clears throat> we do hope that that sort of sticks, and you know, I guess as most countries, well, not most, some countries like Australia, we're actually quite lucky because we've basically got no COVID in the general public. Um, we only see COVID input, you know, people coming back to Australia and they're in quarantine. And, you know, sales are still very strong here in Australia. So I'd hope that as other countries recover that, you know, we'll see a similar thing. So I think on a whole, for the industry, it's probably been good. We've seen a, you know, growth in popularity. But, you know, for some some people, you know, they've really, really struggled. And I know, you know, a number of businesses in some of those countries where they've had issues getting um, exporting fish that, you know, businesses have closed down because of it so it's that's really sad it's um hopefully some of those businesses can get back on track as flights open up but yeah that that's a big problem and i guess the other issue in terms of flights has been the increased in freight costs because there hasn't been as many planes flying around um freight costs have basically tripled um so it's made it quite quite hard you know cost of fish has gone up significantly in most places well, let's talk a little bit about the upcoming uh, conference, the uh, the World Ornamental Aquarium 2021 Virtual Conference and Exhibition, if I if I said that properly or correctly. That'll which, do. Uh, you, you're spearheading. Can you uh, tell us, I guess, what your inspiration was for this event and, and um, maybe a little bit about it? I guess, yeah, you know, with COVID, lots of trade shows have been cancelled, lots of conferences have been cancelled, so there's been very little opportunity to travel. In fact, I was laughing with one of my colleagues the other day, and this is probably the the longest I've been in Australia for 15 years without you know, <laughs> traveling. So, um, which has been good, but it would be nice to get back overseas again. So I guess, you know, look, the opportunities to, to bring the industry together have been pretty limited. Um, you know, there are some trade shows starting to go ahead now, like Interzoo is online and they're, they're, uh, that's next next month in, in Europe. So that's, that's great to see that going ahead. And hopefully there'll be more, you know, sort of live conferences and trade shows come online this year. But yeah, so I guess the inspiration for this was just to try and get people together. If we're not talking as an industry, it's, it's not a good thing. We, we need to be communicating. We all have similar issues. We need to be you know, collaborating on, on those issues and in, improving things as we go. So and yeah, I guess the other thing about this, this event is more trying to bring hobby and industry together. Like we're hoping to get a lot of visitors, you know, hobbyists to come and visit and have a look, uh, maybe join the conference as well. And um, you know, for them to sort of learn a little bit more about where their fish are coming from, because I think that's important too for people to understand, you know, the whole process and you know uh, what goes into getting that fish tank into uh, that fish into a, a tank in a pet shop, um, and what you need to be, you know, how you need to be responsible in terms of looking after it at home and you know not dumping it in local rivers and things like that. Yeah, no, that's great. So, I can you maybe describe the format? Of the event and also um, yeah maybe some of the focus areas. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so um, it, it's starting. Well, it's actually the website's live now. So it's going. The conference starts on the twelfth of May. So we're actually doing it a little bit different. Instead of having um, a number of speakers go through and do their presentations live or it's pre-recorded, you know, on a specific day, we're actually going to have like a what we call a live panel session where we'll have a keynote speech. Um, that'll go for about 30 minutes and then we'll have a panel of, of people to discuss that theme. Now behind that we've also got I think we've got 22 speakers now um, that'll have pre-recorded uh, presentations on the website. They're going to be available for the duration of the uh, of the exhibition which will be from the 12th of May through the uh, 5th of June so people can have a look at if they're registered as a uh, to, for the conference they can look at that anytime they like. So rather than have people sit for two or three days through a whole heap of um, 
video. We're actually trying to compact that. We have a short two, sh two sessions a day for two hours uh, over three days. So there's six sessions in total. These will also be recorded and made available for people as part of the conference package. Um, and people can look at the pre-recorded uh, presentations at, um, at their leisure and to get more information about those specific themes. And we've also got a, an exhibition part to the program where there's a number of um, stands for exhibitors. So these are you know, fish, fish exporters, importers, um, a couple of retailers, some manufacturers, not as many as we, we'd like, but uh, it's, a, it's a first start, so that's, that's good. And there'll also be a, like a live stage. So some of the exhibitors will be doing some presentations over after the conference as part of that. We've also uh, just got the Indonesian government on board as a sponsor. So we'll be doing an Indonesian exporter day as well as part of that live stage program. So it's a little bit different to normal, a normal sort of conference program. And I think though it's, it gives people a bit more flexibility. They don't have to lock in three or four days where they've got to sit all day. Um, as everything's going to be recorded, if you miss out, you can come back to it at a later date and it's there for future reference. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds great. So I think you had mentioned potentially uh, a discount for hobbyists if they want to join. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I think we'll try to put that on your guest page as well. Yeah, for sure. Look, I'd love to offer. So normally for the to visit the exhibition part of the program is free. So you can just uh, get onto the website, which sure you'll post up for me yes um and um yeah you can say so you can view the exhibitor stands and the live stage program um, for free if you want to actually participate in conference so there is a charge now it's normally 95 dollars us um, but if we uh use the promo code it'll be ten dollars so we can reduce that down so that's a great discount and so uh, we'll have the promo code again uh you know this is a great opportunity for any uh hobbyists or industry that are interested um, from a $95 to a $10 fee, which is great. So, okay, I think it is. And, you know, that we've got speakers from all around the world, your good self is giving a presentation. So, that'll be great to hear. But look, we've got talks on marketing, you know, so what's actually happening. So, we're going to talk a bit more about the impact of COVID and some of the market trends that we're seeing at the moment. There's some talks on uh, koi production from Japan, that, that's very exciting. Uh, and a lot of talks about uh, uh, fish health query management, technology, farming techniques. So there's a sort of a little bit of everything. A um, couple of talks about retailing and live transport as well. So little bits and pieces of everything. We can't do it all in one hit, but we do intend to have a series of these conferences over the next um, six to eight months. So we'll do a, a guppy specific event, Koi, probably betters, uh, and we're looking to do an Australian specific event as well and maybe others. Maybe Roy has been sort of had a little bit of a chat off here. <laughs> could do something about biosecurity and aquarium fish health. So I think, you know, as I said, I think this sort of format can work well. It's, it, it doesn't take up a huge amount of time in, in, one, uh, in one hit for people. Hopefully it can help, you know, spread some more information and get people communicating. And I think particularly it's important to get more communication between industry and hobby. There seems to often be a disconnect in, uh, between the hobbyists and, and industry. And I think it's important for, you know, to, to be talking to each other. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's a great, great idea, great format. You know, I actually, this is somewhat unrelated, but you mentioned uh, Australia again, which obviously I have to say one of my favorite groups, and I've had a number of aquariums has been, of course, the uh, the rainbow fishes. So, yeah. <laughs> so I've had a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, rainbow fish tanks over the years. But yeah, yeah. You, you ever get, get to meet Gerald Allen or? Yeah, I've met him a couple of times. Yeah, that's um, great. I, uh, yeah, I used to actually be a member of ANCFA, which is Australian New Guinea Fishers Association. I've sort of lost 
contact. But yeah, Jerry was there a lot. And there's a lot of guys that have done, you know, some of the older guys are the guys that actually discovered some of these species. Yeah, it was really cool. Actually, we um we got some of the first precocs that came into Australia. Oh, nice. Yeah, those were those became very, very expensive, yeah, in the US, obviously. You know. First ones we got, there was a batch of 20, 27 came to Australia. So we got most of those <laughs> and started to breed them. It was yeah, pretty cool. They're amazing fish, really yeah. beautiful. No, I agree. I agree. So I guess we're, we're, we're about to kind of close up. And again, we will have a lot of the information on that conference um, on your guest page. But before we do, I wanted to ask you what you thought of uh, the future of the aquarium fish industry uh, would be in maybe the next five or 10 years. Any, any kind of forecasts or thoughts? Look, I think the one thing that I've been, I think that's changed the industry a lot is the probably over the last 10 years, is the the decrease in the cost of equipment, um, particularly in the marine sector. And I think that's really responsible for, you know, the increase in the marine sector. And if you look at the industry as a whole, marines are growing, aquascaping, um, so, you know, live plant tanks and everything, that those sort of areas are growing a lot. And I think that that's where we're going to continue to grow. There was a real trend towards nanotanks, which I think the small sort of 10 litre Leader nanotanks probably won't won't be as popular in the future. It'll probably more, be more like a you know a slot, slightly larger tank, maybe like a um, you know like a 20, 20 liter tank. But I, th- I think you know marines are going to continue to become more and more popular. Uh, we're going to see a lot more aquaculture of marine fish. I think that'll be a natural progression. Um, I actually, seen this week there's a the announcement of a couple of new species of fish that um, the guys at Rising Tide have been successfully breeding. So that's really exciting stuff. So I think you know there'll be changes that. There'll also be changes to regulation. I think we're going to see a lot more regulation come in nationally for different countries and even international trade. And I think a lot of that will be around the animal welfare, invasive alien species um, themes we've talked about. So you may see in some countries that there's restrictions to species that they can deal with. So you know, there's some of the challenges that we face. But I think I'm actually very hopeful that you know over the the COVID spike that we've had in the increasing popularity that that'll tend to continue and we do actually see a lot more younger people coming into the hobby which has been an issue so over the last probably 20 years if you've ever been involved with a hobby club you probably find that if you are our age you'd probably be the youngest people there Um, but now I think that there's a lot more people that the internet's become I guess a lot more important in terms of those user groups so I think that, that you know those sorts of things are going to continue it's you know having that community of people that you can deal with um to to help you through the hobby because it's it can be a challenging hobby but you know getting over those challenges is part of the reward and you know i remember one of the biggest achievements when i first bred you know guppies you know i thought man i'm so good you know i've actually managed to breed guppies now it was probably not me it was just because that's what they do but uh (laughs) yeah um they are pretty easy to breed but uh but yeah i think you know that that's one of the big things is we'll see that the continuing those uh, those sectors and you know hopefully get a lot more young people involved in the hobby. I, I do have to um, correct you though, because Shane, you and I are still very young. So <laughs> no, yeah, that's, sometimes that's sometimes I don't feel it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, and unfortunately, we're out of time. I, I want to thank our guest Shane Willis. Thanks again, Shane, very much for uh, joining us, and our producer Mark Winner for making this show possible. So. Shane, you kind of mentioned a little bit about the disconnect, maybe a little disconnect between the hobbyists and the industry and also some of the regs. Any, any uh, final thoughts, anything um, maybe the listeners can do or start thinking about that would be uh, kind of helpful for the hobby as a whole? Come to Wawa 21, um, see what we're doing you know, in, the, in terms of the industry. But yeah, I think you know, to become a bit more involved, look, 
be great to to have a look at the OFI website. So it's OFI or OFISH, O-F-I-S-H.org. Have a look at that. You can see some of the issues. PJAC in America is very strong on on, um, lobbying on behalf of the industry as well. So there's some good information on that. So it's just, I guess, try and be aware a little bit more of of what's going on in the industry and and perhaps how you can, um, you know, you may be able to help. Quite often we, you know, we ask for um, information from, from industry and for hobby and one of the challenges as a trade organisation is you know, trying to get that information because not everyone wants to share. So I think, as I said, it's communicating and just learning what else is going on in industry. That's great, great advice and uh, appreciate that. Thanks again for joining us. Please be sure to check out Shane's web links. We'll have those on the Aquarium Mania um, bio page for Shane. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, be sure to visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your animals healthy. And definitely check out the upcoming World Ornamental Aquarium 2021 virtual conference and exhibition. We'll have more information about that on Shane's webpage. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.